Well, good evening, Living Hope Community Church. Thank you so much for joining us once again this evening. And, um, you know, for all our uh, Canadian uh, friends and family and neighbors, those of you who are celebrating um, uh, uh, Thanksgiving this weekend, I, we just want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving to you and your family and trust that uh, for this long weekend that you have taken some time to relax and enjoy the time with your family. I know a lot of people may be doing their turkey or their chicken or whatever way you normally would do to celebrate. We just want to wish you well and your family and enjoy uh, the day as well. So thank you so much um, for joining us. And I would like to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 8. We're going to read from Acts chapter 8 verse 4 to 25. Um, because it will give us the entire context of what we are going to learn from God's Word this evening. So um, if you have an online version or an, a hard copy like I do, I would encourage you to turn with me to um, the passage of Scripture today, which is Acts chapter 8. Um, and we'll be reading from verse 4 to 25. Before I do, I'll ask you to join me in a word of prayer as we look to the Lord and ask His blessing upon His Word, upon all that we say and do here this evening. Father, Lord, uh, truly God, we are so thankful, Lord. We're so thankful, Lord, because you are our God and you are our King. We're so thankful, Lord, for this day. This is the day that you have made. And your word says, let us rejoice and be glad in it. And so I pray this evening, Lord, for even this day, Lord, uh, this weekend here, as we celebrate this Canada weekend, take time out, Father, to just to reflect on uh, your goodness and faithfulness and a lot of people may be uh, doing uh, other things uh, this evening Lord or this weekend and finding ways in which they are thankful for Father and we just are we're just so thankful for your hands of provision each and every day of our lives your hands of, of protection and guidance Father and Lord all that you have been doing in and through our lives and those that are listening we just commit everything into your hands. Lord, I pray for your word and I ask God that you'll lead us by your spirit. Lord God, we pray that your Holy Spirit will illuminate your word. Make known to us your ways this afternoon and cause us to submit to your lordship. And Father, we pray God that your Holy Spirit will convict hearts of, of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And so we commit our lives and we ask Lord that you'll lead us in Jesus name. Amen. Chapter 8, verse 4 um, in Acts, as a continuation from where we were um, last week, um, we are going to read from verse 4, and it says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now these are the, the disciples that were scattered, um, and um, because of the persecution of of uh, Stephen, now the church is being persecuted. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to them, to them, attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, come out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. 
Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hand, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, <clears throat> May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, that is, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in, in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of, of, the, of the Samaritans. Let me just read that back to you again. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And this is God's word, and we ask God's blessing upon his word this afternoon. Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, we were first introduced to Stephen and Philip who were chosen among the seven, which are the seven that were chosen, to be the four set of deacons appointed by the early church. And we saw that a um, couple weeks ago. Then in Acts chapter 7, provides us with the, the characteristic of Stephen, a man full of the spirit, the Bible says, full of God, full of the grace of God, full of the power of God, a man full of wisdom, full of faith, full not only of faith, but, but, but one who, whose face was that of an angel when they look upon him, one who saw the glory of God and that of the risen Christ. Also Philip, we, the Bible said that he was filled with the knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. He knew the history of the Jewish people. His ancestors and the stubbornness of their heart in rejecting the Messiah, which is the Christ. And because of what he said to them in Acts chapter 7, that would, that would lead, to, lead to his death. And then Acts chapter 8 opens with these words. But before I read that, I wanted to come back to Acts chapter 7, verse 51. And here, what, here is what uh, Simon had to say to the people that were listening to him that day. Here, here's the reason why they kill him, because they were not willing to listen to the truth. Here what he said to them in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and your ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And not only you, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets, he says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And because of this, because of what he said to them, they stoned him to death. Now why was the death of Stephen so important? Now it serves two things here this afternoon. Here's the reason why Stephen's death was important. First, it serves as a catalyst for the persecution of Christians. If Stephen was considered a blasphemer by telling the truth, by presenting Christ from what I just read and telling them about their, the, the stubbornness of their heart and their self-righteousness. They were not willing to hear. They were not willing to listen to the Holy Spirit. And he lost his life because of telling the truth. Now, what would become of the other believers if they, if they have gone thus far to, now, um, to, 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 uh, to kill Stephen, to stone him to death? What would become of all the other 25,000 or 20 plus thousand of believers that were there in Jerusalem. So Stephen's death first served as a catalyst for the persecution of, of Christians. It also serves, second thing, it also serves as a catalyst 
for the scattering of the early believers, not only as a persecution, but it also serves as a means to scatter the believers to fulfill God's plan of ev evangelizing the rest of the world with the good news of the gospel outside the borders of Jerusalem. Excuse me. So, so there are those two things. One, it serves as a catalyst, catalyst for the persecution of Christians, and then it also serves as a catalyst for, for the scattering of the believers outside of the borders of Jerusalem. God's plan was not, remember, God's plan was not for the church to remain in one place, but to fulfill its mission. And the Jerusalem church, which was, a, which was a mega church, has become complacent and are not making any effort. They were not making no effort to get out to the other communities in presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ to the rest of the world. And so the death of Stephen allowed that to happen. Because Acts chapter 1, Jesus said to them when, when he was ascended, he said, go into Jerusalem and wait and you will receive power, Acts 1 and 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witness in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria. Look, look at the progression. Jer Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the rest of the world. Where were the church? 25,000 already alone in Jerusalem and they were not making any stir to move out of that. Up until this point, the apostles had only faced rejection they had only faced imprisonment and some of them experienced beating now persecution has taken a new meaning that is the death for the christians at the end of acts chapter 7 we see the transition from stephen to saul of tarsus who ordered the death of stephen and later would become the chief persecutor of christians now look at, the, look at the opening verse of Acts chapter 8. Just take your Bible, flip there to Acts chapter 8 verse 1. And you will see here, here what Luke is, Dr. Luke is giving us an account. He says, and Saul approved of his execution, which is Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. So after the death of Stephen, that's what happened, a great persecution came against the church but look what look what Paul look what Luke is saying to us look at look at the Bible not only against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered now pay attention to the passage they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria what did Jesus say to them you will be my witness in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria, and to the rest of the world. Right? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And here we are getting another account that the persecution now take a new meaning that the Christians, were going, the Christians are going to be persecuted for their faith, for their belief in Jesus Christ. So, John, Paul, Luke is saying, and not only did persecution, a great persecution uh, arose against the church, but they were scattered. God was now putting them out outside the borders of Jerusalem. But pay attention to that passage again. That passage that we read. They did not just go to the regions of Judea and Samaria. But look at the latter part of that verse, and it says, except the apostles, the entire community of believers were scattered in Judea in, uh, and around the world, starting to move out. Only the 12 apostles stayed back in Jerusalem, in the Jerusalem church. So the church has gone from 25,000, 20 to 25,000, to just 12 apostles remaining there. So let me say something here this afternoon. Persecution does not stop the move of God. If you, when you look at a church today and you have 25,000 believers and they are scattered, and your church is now 12 people. People are saying, well, it's a failure. Not so with the Jerusalem church. It wasn't a failure. It was God's plan to move the church out to, to fulfill God's mission. And persecution, like I said, does not stop the move of God. 
Persecution does not make the church weaker, but makes the church stronger in its mission of evangelizing the world. And that's what happened. That's the, what took place in the book of Acts chapter 8. That is the account that we have. Then in Acts chapter 8, for those who had been scattered. Now pay attention to the next verse. Look at verse 4. He says, those who had been scattered. Scattered. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. They were not only going out now into the villages and into their community, but as they go, not in fear, maybe some were in fear of their lives, but as they go, they were preaching the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were taking the message of the gospel into their community. Now, the original Greek word disparentes, when translated, were scattered in that passage of scripture that we just read, gives us our English word diaspora, which means to disperse, basically, as well as to sow throughout. That means you, you, you sow seeds. This is the same word that is being used in Matthew chapter 13, the same Greek word used in Matthew chapter 13, when Jesus said of the parable that a sower went out to sow, and that's the same word, to scattered scattered seed across and as he sowed those seeds some fell on the good side, the bad some fell on the wayside some fell on rocky um, soil and that is exactly what christians the christians were doing from the outside it may have seen brothers and sisters that they were fleeing for their lives but they were at the same time fulfilling god's plan to evangelize the world with the gospel and the good news of jesus christ In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, Paul is going to make a confession. He says, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. He says, I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. So here we're seeing the Apostle Paul not only was responsible for Stephen that is confessing that, that the believers who were put in jail or in prison, most of them, their lives were taken from them. But those that were scattered took the gospel with them. So nothing can stop the move of God. Nothing can stop the church from fulfilling its mission. And as believers in Christ, we must never be satisfied with just, with just being church attenders. We must not be satisfied for just being church attenders. If God was to scatter the mega churches today that you see in the U.S. And, in, and, and all over the world, if God were to take those same churches and scatter them, more and more people will hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will see revival taking place, brothers and sisters, all over this world. We'll see communities being transformed and life changed. And that is what the Bible talks about, the joy of knowing Christ. When there is revival in community, when lives are changed, when hearts are transformed. And everywhere the church is planted, it must fulfill God's plan of reaching the lost. The church must be willing to reach out to their communities with the gospel. And this is the calling of every believer. So think about the 20-something 20, 20 thousand that went out. The Bible said they took the word of God with them. They were preaching and sharing the good news of the gospel. That is, the, that is where we see evangelism starting to take place. To God used the church to evangelize. Every one of us are called to be an evangelist. That is the calling of every believer to share the good news of the gospel. It was the believers who were scattered that took the gospel. The apostles remained in Jerusalem while some were put in prison. And it was Saul who would confess that he took their lives. But Acts chapter 8, where we are today, we are now presented with a ministry. We've gone from, 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 from Peter to to Stephen, and now we're now presented with Philip. 
And we're given an entire chapter with Philip. And we're now, as we are presented with Philip here today, the first, Philip will become the first missionary an evangelist to take the gospel outside of Jerusalem into Samaria. And by now we are starting to see, if you have been following this series that we are preaching in in the book of Acts, by now we are starting to see a pattern in the lives of the men God has been using so far to fulfill his mission. And like I said, first we see Paul. First, first we see Peter in Acts chapter 2 stood up on the day when the Holy Spirit comes and reaching out to the Jewish community. He preached to them the gospel. Until that point in time, Peter was actively involved in ministering the good news of the gospel to the Jewish community. Then came along Stephen, Stephen who helped move the church outside the borders of Jerusalem. And God used Stephen, God used the, this, this man full of passion, full of God. As an example of what would, what, how the gospel should be, should be proclaimed. And now then in Acts, we are now given Philip to bring the gospel to Samaria. So God is fulfilling, using men and women to fulfill his plan. And Philip was going to bring the gospel to the Samaritans, fulfilling God's plan as God says, you will be my witness in Jerusalem, in all Judea and in Samaria and then to the ends of the world. So today we're going to today we are going to explore three key points or events in the lives of the Samaritans. Now, I may not be able to finish all three, but I'll cover two at least. And the lesson we can learn from these two things here this week is to help us to truly understand what God is saying to us as the gospel reaches Samaria. I like the first thing we're going to look at the joy the joy in hearing the gospel which is verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. And second, we're going to look at the kingdom of God, which is in verse 12. And it says there, but when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And the third thing, if we have time, we're going to look at the heart of the unconverted, which I'm going to say for next week. So we're going to just look at joy in hearing the gospel and the kingdom of God in verse 12. So first, let us look at joy in hearing the gospel. Verse 8. Hear what it says. Follow me in Acts chapter 8, verse 5. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. He went down to the city of Samaria, and what he did, he proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, it didn't say, it didn't say Jesus. It says, proclaim to them the Christ. And it's important for us to make note of that. And as the crowd with one accord paid attention to him. Look at the reaction of the people. They paid attention to him. And what was being said by Philip when they have heard him and saw the signs that he did. So they heard the the gospel. They saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and Many who were paralyzed were lame. So there was this work of, um, of healing and signs of deliverance taking place in the lives of the, of, the Samaritan, of the Samaritans. And then in verse 8 says, After all they have paid attention and, and to his teaching and hearing the gospel and seeing the signs of miracles of healing taking place, they were, there was much joy in that city. Now, why did Luke give us such a mess, such such an account of what took place in Samaria? Why was Samaria the next to hear the good news of the gospel? Because in Acts chapter one, it goes back to God's promise that you will be my witness in Jerusalem. That the gospel must not must also reach Judea and the Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So let me tell you something a little about Samaria and why is it important. The city of Samaria is about 30 miles north of Jerusalem in central Israel. In, in 1 Kings, in chapter 16, verse 23 and 24, Samaria was bought and built in 878 BC by Omri, king of northern kingdom of Israel. At that time, Omri was the king. He ruled and reigned, and he bought. And, and built the city of Samaria in 1878. Then in 700 
and 22 BC, Samaria was conquered by the king of Assyria. And the upper class Jews, those that are the upper class, the highly and the religious, were taken into captivity. And the lower class, the lower class, the poor and the outcasts, the lower class, Jew, class Jews who were left behind, what happened what, end up in, in intermarriage with pagans from five Assyrian cities. As Assyria t came into that city and took it over, those who remained intermarriage, and they were known as the Samaritans. They were, they were later disowned by the upper class, those who came out of captivity. And ever since then, there has been this rift, this, the, the, this division between the Samaritans and the Jews. And many of us are going to learn from the discourse of Jesus and the woman at the well. And she said when Jesus came to her and he says, the woman said to her, you being a Jew, ask me for a drink of water? I'm a Samaritan. Don't you realize that you're a Jew and a Samaritan, that the Samaritans have, the Jew have no dealings with Samaritans and vice versa? So this, this, this racial and religious and cultural barrier has always been there between the Jews and the Gentiles. And here what Jesus says, you are going to be my witness in Jerusalem with one set of Jews going to the outcast. And it was important for the gospel to reach Samaria. Here is the reason why the gospel was important to reach Samaria. Because the gospel is the only means by which we can break every racial, every cultural, every historical, and every theological barrier. It's the gospel that is able to pull down every barrier that is set up and put up by man. Only the gospel can fill, only the gospel can pull down the walls of racism. Only the gospel is able to pull down the walls of, like I said, the cultural and historical, and whether it's religious barrier. Set up by men. Because when, when it is the gospel that helps us to realize that we are all one in Christ. There is no Jew. There is no Gentile. There is no free. There is no bond. There is no black. There is no white. There is no color when it comes to the gospel. And that is what it means of knowing Christ. That it is the gospel that removes everything. Every barrier. And it is the gospel that opens our eyes to see every human being as equal. Equally created in the image and in the likeness of God. It is the gospel that is the only thing that can do that to lost humanity. The Samaritans have always believed that the Messiah, the Christ would come. And Philip would proclaim Christ to them. That is the reason why when you read verse 8, like I said, pay attention to that. Philip went down to Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Because they have always believed in the Messiah, the Christ, that one day he will come. The woman at the well said that to Jesus. We know that the Messiah will come. That when he come. So they have always believed the five books of Moses. They never read anything else. Only the five books of Moses, but they believe in the promise that the Messiah will come. And here the Messiah show up at their door through the life of Philip. And Philip proclaimed Christ to them. He didn't tell them and go and, and try to win them by anything else. No, he met them exactly where they are. He knew their history and he presented to them. And the church must never, never lose its focus in proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord. When our message is watered down, and Christ is not preached, we will never see the power of God at work in people's life. When we water down the gospel, when we settle for, the, when we settle for any and everything, all you hear in some churches today is a watered-down gospel. The truth of the gospel is not being made known. And Acts chapter 8 verse 6 says, hear what it says. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, God was now using Philip to bring the gospel in such a way to the lives of the people that were outcasts. And only the gospel can penetrate to such a place and into, in, into people's life. 
And the Bible said there was so much joy in that city. Joy here speaks of the joy of knowing Christ. The joy of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior because every life was changed and transformed by the power of God. Because God was healing and delivering those who were sick. Because God was breaking down the walls of partition. God was breaking down the racial, the historical, and the cultural barrier that were there for centuries and centuries since, eight, since, since the time of the Assyrian captivity, 722, 700 years before Christ came, the, the, the Jews and the Samaritans were living like that. And here now God is going to now bring, pull down that whole wall of racial and social and religious barrier. Only the gospel can bring such joy in our community, in our world, brothers and sisters. And the answer is not found in our education system. It is not found in, our, in, in, in social and political system. It's not found in our government. It's not found in any other system created by man, but through the power of the gospel, through Christ. That is how we are going to change, see change come about in our community. And the gospel is the only means of salvation. And you heard me say this many, many times, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And only through Christ and Christ alone is God's answer to a fallen world. There is no other answer to a fallen and broken world. And the, Samaria, the Samaritans experienced the joy of knowing Christ. And every one of us that are watching today, and I'm sure you have an experience, maybe many of you are walking with the Lord, and you know that joy of knowing Him because He has changed and transformed your life. Not a head, this is not about, knowing Christ is not a head knowledge. They never come to just knowing Christ. The Bible said this joy that they receive is that they, they, it was not a head knowledge. No, their lives were changed. They did not just believe in Jesus. No, it was a complete change of heart. And it is one thing to believe in Jesus. And anybody can claim to make a profession of faith. Oh I, oh, I accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Oh, yes. And, you know, we can make a profession of faith. But what makes a difference is when our lives are changed. Because the Bible says old things are passed away and all things become new. If Christ is in your life, your life will never be the same. And we're going to see this in the life of si Simon, who, who is a self-proclaimed Christian. He, he, was, he professed to, to, to accept Jesus as Lord. And we're going to look at that next week. Making a profession of faith does not mean that you are saved, does not mean that you are a Christian, does not mean that you have a change of heart. Many people have a prof make profession of faith, but it doesn't mean that they have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior because there is no change. There is no transformation taking place. A change in heart can only come about when the Spirit of God has convicted your heart of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. A change of heart can only come about when the life of God has come into us, uh, has come and take possession into sinful man. And that is what Jesus told Nicodemus. You must be born again. It is the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. The work has nothing to do with you. You cannot born, be, uh, bring about your birth. You are not even responsible for the one that you, are, you have right now, your physical. You're not even responsible for your spiritual birth. It is the work of God and God alone. And here what John says in John chapter 1 verse 9. The true light that gives the, true light, that gives the light to everyone. The true light, who is that? Christ, that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Hear what the Bible says. Yet, all who did receive him to those, to those who believe in his name, he gave them the right to become the children of God. But look at the 13th verse. Children not born of natural descent. 
nor of human decision. So if it was your decision to be born again, forget it. You get a wrong theology, wrong teaching. You are not responsible for your birth. The children born not of natural descent, nor of human descent or human will. Look at it. But born of God, it is God who is at work. And that is the joy of knowing Christ when Christ comes into your heart and change your life completely. It's not a head knowledge. It's not saying I believe in Jesus and I'm going to try Jesus. Look, let me say this to you and I said to somebody, Jesus is not someone you try. He's not like Tylenol or Coke. He's not aspirin. Oh, so you go to the pharmacy and I'm going to try Jesus. This doesn't work today and I'm going to try Jesus. No, Jesus is someone you trust. And when you trust him and you lean completely on him and he changes and transforms your life, it brings joy, the Bible says. That is the joy of knowing who Jesus Christ is. Because your life will never, ever be the same again. And if there is no change, then there is no Christ. If there is no change, then you're not born again. Simple as that. Every born again believer must go through change in their life. Out of darkness into light. And only those who experience that knows what I'm talking about. So we have gone from the joy that the Samaritans receive. And look at the second thing. The kingdom of God, verse 12, has come. Hear what it says. But when they believe, we're, we're, we're skipping Simon's story. So if you're following me, we're skipping all of Simon's story. We're just jumping right into verse 12 now, looking at the kingdom of God. Hear what it says, because there's so much that we have to learn from this passage of scripture. Not only did he minister to the Samaritans about what took place, but look what happened. That story with the Samaritans continue. Acts chapter 8 and verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, not only did he preach Christ, but he, as they believed him, preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were now baptized. Look at that. They were baptized. Both men and women, even Simon himself believed. Believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and wonders and everything. And miracles performed, he was amazed. But look at the 14 verse. It says, now when the apostles. This is not a disciple. This is not Philip. When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. What they received? The word of God. They sent to Peter and John. They sent Peter and John who came down and prayed for the believers in Samaria that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then they laid their hands and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, this is key and this is very important that you pay attention to this part here. Because uh, this is one of the mistranslated verse, misunderstood passage of scripture in the book of Acts. Philip not only preached Christ the Messiah, but also he preached the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, brothers and sisters, speaks of God rule and reign over principalities and over power, over spiritual wickedness in high places, the Bible says, over in... A, over the many centuries of the stronghold of the enemy, over the lives of the Samaritans. That was the kingdom of God that came to the, to the, to the Samaritans. Because principalities, uh, demonic spirit were cast out, lives were being healed and changed and transformed. Only the kingdom of God can destroy the kingdom of man and Satan. Only the kingdom of God breaks the walls of hatred and prejudice and malice and envy and strife and jealousy and everything that we set up. Only the kingdom of God is able to do that. And the church or the body of Christ is this kingdom of God here on earth proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the kingdom of God must always engage in spiritual warfare. The Bible says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and power. Ephesians chapter 6. And then Paul will say these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 10 and verse 4. He says, 
For though we walk in the flesh, we as believers in Christ walk in the flesh. We do not war against the flesh. See, the problem is not your flesh and blood, like he said, but against principalities and power, against the kingdom of darkness. That's why the kingdom of God came to Samaria to establish that the church was going to continue with such power against the work of the enemy. And Paul would say, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter, two, chapter 10 and verse 4, he says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imagination and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing down captivity and every thought to the obedience of Christ. Everything surrender at the, Lord, uh, at the, at the feet of Jesus Christ. Every principality submit at the, at, the fit, at, the foot, at the foot of Jesus. The Bible says at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not only did they heard the word, look at verse 14, verse 14 through 17. This experience is not common, nor does it serve as an example of how the Holy Spirit is given. Now let me spend some time here. Verse 14 through 17 is not a common thing that should happen in the church. Nor does it serve as an example of how the Holy Spirit is given. It is not something, it is not something that is repeated day after day or in church after church. This is not how you receive the Holy Spirit. Don't use Acts chapter 8 as a means to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can never be given by the laying of hands. And I'm saying this because some churches believe that the Holy Spirit is the only given by the laying of hands. And that is not what the scripture teaches here. The Holy Spirit is only given when you are born again. Every born again child of God has the Holy Spirit. The evidence today is a transformed life, brothers and sisters. A change in heart and a lifestyle. A love for the things of God and Christ. And that's how you know you have the Holy Spirit. A desire for righteousness. There is this strong desire for righteousness and holiness. A desire that seeks after God. And not only seek for itself, but also want to share the good news of the gospel with others. And let me, make, let me take a moment to say this. That speaking in tongues is not a sign that you have the Holy Spirit. It's when you're born again, you have the Holy Spirit. Speaking in tongues, as some people said, it's a second blessing of the Holy Spirit. There's no way that the scripture is saying that. Speaking in tongues is a gift given to the church. And in this passage here, there is no mention that the Samaritans were speaking in tongues. Now you may be looking, listening to me and you're, you're thinking that the Samaritans already believe in Jesus. As you heard, as you heard me read, and they accepted Christ. But why was the Holy Spirit not given? Why, did, why was it necessary for the apostles, which is Peter and John, to come to Samaria before they can receive the Holy Spirit? Why was that? Have you ever stopped and think, why did they just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and baptize but never receive the Holy Spirit? And why did it take the apostles them to come and for the Holy Spirit to be imparted in their lives? Now there are two answers. And we must go back to Acts chapter 1 verse 8 for the first answer. Hear what it says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit come upon you. That's the apostles. Jesus was talking only to the, to the twelve. And you will be my witness in Jerusalem. Where? They were already a witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea. But in Samaria, he said to the apostles, you will be my witness. And not only that, but to the end of the earth. So the promise, the promise was given to the apostles that they were going to be the witness. They were going to witness the Holy Spirit work, not only in Jerusalem, which is in Acts chapter 2 and verse 7 when the Holy Spirit came, but they were now going to witness the work of the Holy Spirit again in the lives of the Samaritans because one set of Jews, they were, God was now breaking down those barriers and God was fulfilling his plan that even the apostles were responsible for that. 
And then later on, we're going to see not only did the, 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 the apostles were responsible to see the move of God in Jerusalem, in, in Samaria, but they're going to see it in the Gentile in Cornelius, which we're going to come in, come look, after, look at a couple of weeks from now. God, so the first thing is that it had to be the, the apostles them who, who had to see and witness the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Samaritans and the coming of the Holy Spirit upon their lives. That's the first thing because it fulfilled Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. But then the second reason why it was necessary for the apostles, and I'm sure many of you may have guessed that by now, God was also removing, like I said, removing the wall set up between the Jews and the Samaritans. If the Holy Spirit was poured out by the hands of Philip, who was just not an apostle, who was just a, 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 um, a, a deacon at that time, but God was using him mightily to bring the gospel to the Samaritans. If the Holy Spirit was poured out by the hands of, of Philip, the Samaritans would have started their own church and wanting nothing to do with the, with the Jerusalem church. They were going to have an independent church and forget about the apostles. They were going to forget about Jerusalem and there, was not, there were still going to be this racial and cultural barrier that will still exist. So you would have had a church in, 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 in Samaria and you would have a church in Jerusalem. And this tension and barrier would have still exist. But by the apostles them coming and, re, and, 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 and the Holy Spirit poured out by the hands of the apostles, it bridges that gap. That the Samaritans saw that the God has removed that racial and cultural barrier in all those years, 700 years that they live apart. And God used Peter and John as proof that in Christ there, uh, there is no barrier. There are no Jew, there are no Gentiles, there are no bond, there are no free. Every one of us are one in Christ. And that's what God did. That is the reason why the apostle, it was important for them to go to, to Samaria. And God was now bringing both Jews and Samaritan one in Christ. And only the gospel is able to do that, brother and sister. Only the gospel is able to pull down every racial, cultural, religious, and every barrier that we set up. And some churches use the same passage to justify laying of hands and praying for believers to receive the Holy Spirit. That is not what the scripture teaches. Don't let anyone pray for you for receive the Holy Spirit. It is God who is at work that will change and transform your life. Only the Holy Spirit has the power to penetrate your heart, your sinful heart, and change your life forever. So no laying of hands can change your life. You don't need someone to pray for, for that to happen. Regeneration is solely the work of the Holy Spirit. And it is God and God alone. And in coming to a close... That is the joy of knowing Christ, that he is the one who changed and transformed the hearts of sinful men and women. The joy of knowing Christ is that he removes every racial, every cultural, every religious, every theological, every wall he is able to remove, every barrier set up by man. He pulled along the boiling wall and he will pull every, every wall that is set up there against the church. The joy of knowing Christ is that he set us free from every principalities and power and he deliver us from the power of darkness and bring us into his marvelous light. The joy of knowing Christ is that he sees the world differently. We see a world that is lost, but God sees a world that needs a savior. And that is the joy of knowing Christ, brothers and sisters, when we can see with, with, the, with, with the eyes and the lens that God has given us to see the world that the man, humanity is lost. And the, the joy of knowing Christ is that we, we must be willing to lay down our lives for, the, for, for our loved ones, for our neighbors, for our friends, for our family, for our community at large. We ought to deny ourselves, take up our cross. And that is the joy of knowing Christ. And that is the mandate, that is the mission that we must never lose sight of. And I pray and trust that God will challenge your heart, not only to be comfortable where you are, but to allow God to use you wherever you are to be a witness and a testimony of who Jesus Christ is. Share the good news of gospel with friends and family.
Tell them about the love of Christ. Whether they reject you, whether they persecute you, whether they say all manner of things against you. But let them hear the good news of the gospel. God can use Stephen. God can use Philip. God can use every one of us. So let's continue to do the work that God has called us to do, brothers and sisters. That is the joy of knowing Christ, is to see others come to knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today, Lord God, for your word. Thank you so much, Father, that we can, we can grasp so much from this passage of Scripture that we read today in Acts chapter 8. The lives of the Samaritan, the lives of Stephen, Lord. All that you have been doing, God, to, 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 to spread the good news of the gospel to the rest of the world, God. And I pray, Father, we're at where we are tonight in our walk and our relationship. Lord, those that don't know you, God, I pray that they will come to know you. Those that, are, those that are, Lord God, are still struggling with racial and cultural and religious and whatever barrier it is, God, that their hearts and lives are so stirred within them. Father, let them see, God. Open up their eyes to see that there is no barrier with you, God. You're the one that pulls every barrier. You're the one that destroys all principalities and power. You're the one that pulls down those things, God. And see, God, that we are one in Christ. And so I pray, Father, for those that are struggling racially and culturally and religiously, God, that you will open up their eyes to see the truth of your gospel, to see the truth of your word and come to know you, whom to know is life eternal. And God, that they can surrender their life to the working of the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray, God, for the church at large and the body of Christ will continue, God, to be to, to, to continue to proclaim the good news, God, that we'll not be comfortable like the Jerusalem church, become complacent. But God has a passion and a heart for those that are lost. Have a passion and a heart for souls. Have a passion and a loss for their neighbors and our community. The entire world is at our doorstep. And I pray, Father God, that our eyes will be open to reach them with the good news of the gospel. Lord, we thank you and we give you praise and honor, glory and honor that you're doing in our and through our lives. And thank you for everyone that is watching this evening. God, I pray that you will challenge their heart and spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.